0: Five, four, three, two, one.
1: Hello everybody and welcome back to blockchain won't save the world on tour. We're going long haul today to bring you some of the world's most knowledgeable blockchain experts all the way from Singapore. As the home of some of the world's largest blockchain trade networks, innovative startups, thriving venture capital scene, and arguably the world's most supportive government and regulatory environment, Singapore could well be the most advanced blockchain nation in the world. We start with a brief history from the emergence of blockchain in Singapore to the world's first blockchain mega project, Project Ubin, to the global hub of blockchain activity we see today. Your guides are Jenny Go, innovation leader at IBM, Carl Wegner, CEO of Contour, Andrew Co, Deputy General Manager at HBL, and Wei Kwa, the CEO of Accredify.
2: When you look at blockchain in Singapore, the government has put in a lot of effort and investment in looking into blockchain as one of the emerging technology where it can potentially help resolve a lot of challenges that we are facing. Four or five years ago, they started Project Ubin. That's one of the first efforts where IBM also participated and along with a few other players, you could see also from Singapore's point of view that we're a financial hub. So the first few applications that we had was also on things related to financial services. Therefore, it makes sense that the first application that the government has decided to explore is a collaborative project with the industry to look into the use of blockchain and uh, distributed ledger technology DLT for clearing and settlement of payments and securities. That project, Ubin, just closed out phase five last year. And then a result from the phase five is Monetary Authority of Singapore MAS already published a report there about a blockchain-based multi-currency payments network prototype. The good thing that came out of this is that our regional bank, DBS, which is headquartered in Singapore, are working with JP Morgan and our sovereign wealth fund, Temasek. They announced plans to develop an open industry platform to reimagine and accelerate value movements for payments and trade, and also Forex. The other thing that recently has received quite a fair bit of attention is on digital identity. Those of us who have been following blockchain closely, this may not be new, but there's been some new developments in Singapore, Again, I come back to the sovereign wealth fund, Tomasik. (laughs) So Tomasic has invested and they have established a new digital identity firm called Affinity Group. Out of Affinity, they developed two solutions. One is called the Good Worker. The other one is called Trustana. Affinity is using self-sovereign identity solutions based on the uh, W3C standards. So this could be very revolutionizing this could mean that we changed the way how we are going to share data.
3: One of the first projects that was happening, I think globally, was Project Ubin in Singapore, looking at potentially using blockchain in general. They didn't even know what systems they were talking about, but you know, looking at blockchain and how that could help with central bank digital currency. And so Ubin was the first project here in Singapore. I think that set the first standard. Then there was Jasper in Canada. And then Lion Rock in Hong Kong, and then Inthanon in in Thailand. But Ubin was the first one, so I think Ubin was going through again phase two of Ubin before the rest of the world even even started catching up. Well, again, Singapore started out being very open to the whole cryptocurrency. I was living in in China in the earlier days of blockchain, where Bitcoin was very open, and then, it, then all of a sudden it wasn't. Singapore very early on looked at the possibilities and and you know was open to cryptocurrency, cryptocurrency exchanges. That started building the crypto and blockchain community very early on. And that openness to looking at it, you know, setting some regulations, but not putting anyone out of business gave people an opportunity to, to grow and the, the fintech community to grow here quite quickly. And definitely, I think bigger than, than any other country in Asia. You know, the, the regulations were were open to learning. Everyone was trying to learn together. There was support for projects to look at the the beginning, this nascent technology of blockchain, distributed ledger. I think probably Singapore government and MAS was probably the first ones to, to really put some research funding into it and try to gather some of that talent from around the world.
4: The turning point, I would say about two, three years ago when I attended a talk by Microsoft in Singapore and there they highlighted what blockchain has already done and impacted Singapore as a sector. And from that onwards, we can see the banks are coming into the picture. Like, for example, DBS Bank, they have a digital exchange as of end of last year, right? And that they have been reporting in the press uh, 10 times volume as of now as we are speaking. So you can see there's a lot of interest, especially from the wealth management customers who wanted exposure in this sector and not necessarily Bitcoin. So you have Ethereum and you have the other projects, and especially now you can see the the non fungible token or NFTs uh, have really really picked up in a very very big way. And incidentally, the buyer for NFT who paid sixty seven million comes from Singapore. So the last two years, the regulators have actually issued guidelines which they call digital token. So it's not really coin as cryptocurrency, but digital tokens. And guidelines for players who want to have their project in Singapore. And also, as late as the year before, they have also started to issue licenses for exchange that have been wanting to establish themselves in Singapore. And already we see at least two such exchanges being issued licenses, central bank licenses to operate out of Singapore. And that, without a doubt, gave a lot of clarity, a lot of transparency to the players who are still struggling in other countries because of the regulator's actions and also or inaction in terms of setting some kind of basic regulatory guidelines. So that's a very important development.
5: As a trained accountant, I was pretty intrigued. And the first thing that came to my mind was the possibility of real-time audits. To me, back then, a couple of my friends are in the public accounting firms. And then in, day out, they were matching receipts and revenue lines on the balance sheet. The first thing that came to my mind if this thing takes off, my friends will be out of the job. I decided really to explore a lot more about this industry. And that was when I joined the first blockchain startup that actually was in Switzerland, uh, headquartered in Zug. It was a digital asset exchange that had licenses across Europe and some parts of Asia. And what they are trying to do is to digitize all forms of assets, including the traditional securities debt instruments, as well as providing liquidity and the ability to trade things like your cryptocurrencies and other forms of tokens. So back then, it was 2017, where um, it was quite wild west, I would say. And being in Singapore was quite fortunate because Singapore was like the hub and a little bit of test bed for all these new projects. I'm not sure if you remember, but back then a lot of ICO or initial coin offering actually occurred in Singapore because of the very clear guideline that our authorities have given and the steps that you have to take before you can offer your project for external investment. So tons of good and bad projects actually came out of this part of the world. Being in a digital asset exchange, and you know, I had a front seat to all of this. I still remember early 2017 to mid 2017, I could read every single white paper in the market. There was just so few of them. And that in a way was part of my job where we were doing due diligence and determining whether a new project is suitable for listing on our exchange. But things changed so quickly I would say in the span of three months from the middle of July, the entire market just exploded from nobody knowing what's blockchain to everybody talking about ICOs and and trying to raise funds for new projects. I could no longer keep up. I mean, there were more new projects than I could read on a daily basis. What happened then was a lot of skepticism from the big corporates But at the same time, you see a lot of early adopters as well as evangelists in Singapore itself. For example, our central bank was also one of the few in the world that piloted settlement projects on the blockchain. Back then, running a digital exchange in Singapore was also a little bit challenging, especially when it comes to acceptance in the traditional financial industry. So basic things like opening up a bank account could be difficult things like getting approvals from the different authorities could be difficult as well i mean it was for very good reason it's better to over-regulate than under-regulate at the point of time although it might slow down innovation but interestingly most of the players managed to find ways around it
1: Singapore is unique as a small nation that has consistently punched well above its weight in the global economy. We hear more about why and how Singapore has become a world leader in emerging technology from Ming Ng, CEO of Tribe, Amit Ghosh, head of Asia Pacific at R3, Kevin Pang, chairman of the SG Tech Blockchain Committee, and Arno Broly, global blockchain lead at CETA.
6: The whole idea of us as a very small nation in the corner of Southeast Asia, the only thing we have on this land is human capital and the constant need for us to innovate. Singapore doesn't have natural resources. So over the last 50 plus years since our independence, it's all about how humans can work to facilitate transactions globally from a trade finance perspective, from being a medical hub, from being a financial services hub. A lot of it revolves around the whole idea of that everyone needs to always be ready for the next wave of change. That's fundamentally what brought Singapore to where it is today. And from blockchain as well, I mean, blockchain is definitely one of the frontier technologies that the whole world is looking, how can we move fast? How can we strike good partnerships? How can we bring in good capital to help blockchain companies?
7: Even in APAC, we see the financial institutions leading the charge. I think maybe the unique piece here is we have a few geographies, I would say Singapore, Thailand, Hong Kong, to an extent Korea, to an extent, I would say Australia, where the regulators or government bodies are also taking a big and active role. And that sets those countries apart from other countries where adoption is slower. So if you see places like Singapore, Thailand, Hong Kong, a lot of good use cases, both industry consortium use cases, use cases across value chains where, you know, anchor banks working with anchor customers and their network of suppliers and buyers. We see that primarily, I would say, at least from R3's perspective in the financial services world, in the supply chain world, and to an extent in insurance and government. I think those are the four broad sectors. I believe that Singapore is definitely leading the charge. And I would say from a global perspective, I would rank Singapore very highly. I think it's started in some way by it being regulator-led with MAS, starting project Ubin. And that has led to understanding of the technology and a better understanding of the technology beyond the hype which was there in 2015. And then the financial institutions have both participated in industry consortia projects, but also more interestingly, you know, taking their own ideas into action. So we see a lot of different engagements in Singapore with uh, leading institutions like Standard Chartered, DBS, HSBC, ING, SMBC, and exchanges like Singapore Stock Exchange. If I look outside of the financial institution space, I see the likes of IMDA and Enterprise Singapore, which are two government agencies playing a huge role in trade digitization. Their efforts have catalyzed the industry on the corporate side, corporates like Agricorp, Olam, Rio Tinto, which has a big base here, or even Singapore Airlines. And many of them work on initiatives which are partly led or influenced or supported by other government agencies. You know, truly admirable of the effort which these government agencies and probably the ministry behind them are putting. And most recently, I would say in the last year and a half, we also saw the state-owned sovereign investment fund, Temasek taking a very huge role. Temasek has equity stakes or other stakes in all the large corporates in Singapore. And they, you know, they are a classical investment fund, but they took a venture building role and they have started to incubate startups, work with large corporates like SGX or DBS. That has added another fuel to the fire.
8: Singapore as a country is one of the earliest adopters of technology, not just in the region, but at times in you know, comparable to the world. And Singapore welcomes very much innovation, especially in the financial sector. And it's been a couple of years as well, right? Listed as one of the fintech hubs of the world it is still the case right now. And under that particular umbrella, Singapore encourages blockchain development as well. And blockchain happens to be part of uh, financial services in fintech, but it also falls under the, the areas of digital transformation as well. Singapore is very open to all kinds of blockchain projects, including cryptocurrency. So when lots of crypto projects started to appear in Singapore, the government didn't actually step in to stop that proliferation of such projects. Instead, looking into how to properly regulate it and make it more mainstream, which is why Singapore came up with the Payment Services Act. One of the only few jurisdictions around the world that have very clear regulations with regards to the treatment of cryptocurrency and how it can be regulated in terms of like AML and KYC, uh, you know AML-CFT uh, policies to combat money laundering. So I think Singapore does have that leadership in that aspect very much earlier on compared to many other jurisdictions. So I think this one thing that you know, people would be very interested to know, very clear uh, regulations that complies very much to FATF guidelines, Financial Action Task Force guidelines, including the rules and regulations uh, that were prescribed for VSPs, Virtual Asset Service Providers. So Singapore are pretty much following very closely to that. And MAS, which is the Monetary Authority of Singapore, essentially the regulators in Singapore do update the regulations pretty frequently, and they do give public consultation. So it's not something that where, okay, I'm going to say that this is going to be regulations and it's going to be cast in stone tomorrow. What they do is typically they do inform the industry in advance. They welcome consultation from the industry to say that, hey, this is a, a very good uh, regulation to have and all that, or is very harsh. For those who want to know, Singapore do have a distinguishing between, you know, for block Blockchain, right into the use case for financial services and non-financial services. So for the use of blockchain for financial services, be it trade finance or especially in cryptocurrency or stable coins, central bank digital currencies, that falls under the purview of MES as the regulator. Now, any other application of blockchain for the purpose of uh, non-financial services under manufacturing, logistics, pharmaceutical, healthcare, FFB, et cetera, that will fall under the purview of IMDA. So Singapore have a very clear, I won't say it's a Chinese firewall, but a very clear distinguishing financial services and non-financial services. So that's how the agencies, the government will actually manage that.
9: Clearly, um, Singapore is especially attractive for entrepreneurs or, or businesses who are looking for innovation. And some of the reasons, to me is first stability, political stability, or the rules are usually, you know, sustainable, doesn't change every, uh, every election or every, uh, you know, year or quarter or whatever. So pretty, stability is quite key. And the uh, environment it is very really pro-business. So the ease of doing business is clear if you want to build up a company and all the the tax mechanism and the support you can have uh, if you're an entrepreneur are quite great. They're not the only one uh, to to, to do that, of course, but you can really feel it in Singapore. And the things as well on more um, applied to blockchain is a regulatory environment. They encourage experimentation and the fact that, uh, for example, if you, you want to develop a new idea, new concept, you have a very an internationally trusted legal system and intellectual property framework which can protect yourself and the risk and your investment on that. We see as well in some other area more in, uh, in crypto that the Monetary Authority of Singapore is really encouraging experimentation and encouraging the partnerships. And they were even at the initiation with some venture about some uh, cross-border uh, blockchain based payments. So they're really, uh, really encouraging and uh, cheering the innovation, uh, blockchain based innovation there. And the good things as well, it's clearly the government support scheme, because for the ecosystem of startups, there is a lot, a lot, a lot of effort done by the government to to fund, to to provide facilities, even office space and things like that, to encourage innovation, uh, mostly from startup uh, perspective. And which are usually filled by as well, uh, highly uh, educated uh, labor, because uh, the quality of education in Singapore is really amazing. You have a very uh, amazing university, uh, NUS, uh, SMU, SUTD, and to name to name a few, which really are bringing a cohort of French uh, grad every year who are really uh, motivated and really uh, eager to, to take some risk in a startup. And blockchain and other technologies are really uh, favored in the curriculum of those universities. Altogether, I can continue, but it means that uh, there is really an all-favorable environment for the blockchain development in Singapore
3: here. So let's find out more about the blockchain community in Singapore.
1: To give you a full immersion into the Singapore scene, we have Atul Patel, co-founder of DLT Ledgers, Arno Kevin, and Alan Lim, head of the fintech infrastructure office at the Monetary Authority of Singapore.
10: The community scene in blockchain is very vibrant in Singapore you know you could divide it into two parts one is all, all around the crypto and the bitcoin and all the exciting stuff around that area and second is all about developers who wants to build enterprise apps or distributed apps right so it's a very strong communities for example the uh, the hyperledger singapore community group which i found that has over 1300 developers and you know it continues to grow we have a similar group for ethereum we have a similar group for Coda. There is a huge connection to the academia, which I was interested in supporting those. So SMU, Singapore Management University that has got an entire blockchain wing, and they work together, you know, with FinTech like us, and we work together with them. And that got extended to, you know, NUS, which is a big university here, SUTD, which is another big university, and NTU, right? So there's a huge academia support. And in fact, uh, National Research Foundation, which is one of the Premier Body, which supports all the deep tech research, has, in combination with fintech community, created a World Singapore Blockchain Consortium that, again, has got sandbox and the grants, which is available for anybody to come and try the use case. So very, very strong community spirit here. I think on the enterprise side, we see a big momentum. The whole interoperability topic, which is now, I think, of real interest to everyone, is really also taking a lot of attention. Tribe Accelerators, there are several accelerators that have come in, Tribe Accelerator is one of them which we are part of. They're also doing a fantastic job to support and bringing all this community together. There's a Singapore blockchain ecosystem report that kind of got established again through this support from IMDA and Tribe, You know, which lists everybody who is in the community here and they divide by supply chain, and trade and you know, on the enterprise banking side, on the insurance side, et cetera. So there are free courses available by ICC, International Chamber of Commerce, along with the support from Singapore. The government has provided anybody who is an employee in Singapore a course on trade and trade finance and blockchain at pretty much like less than $50 or something for whatever you want to learn about. So there's a lot of support and community spirit here.
9: The blockchain community has really uh, rocketed over the past years. It's kind of incredible. So, when before you have a few companies doing white papers, uh, it was really uh, more an elitist topic uh, where people are more scared or thought it was a kind of smoke mirror. In the recent years, it really generates such traction and it's backed by by a government. And actually, I think one or two years ago, what we call IMDA, which is uh, Infocom Media Development Authority, which uh, which depends to the Ministry of Communication and Information of Singapore, and together with some accelerators, they really had a task at government level to promote awareness and adoption of uh, blockchain technology and to grow the blockchain uh, ecosystem in Singapore. So they started by really uh, doing the mapping about uh, who are those uh, ecosystems, application level. Uh, the investor or different associations, all the different protocols, public or private, the data and cloud services, software, middleware, or, or consulting. So they realized that the, the growth was, I think, around that 50% growth, but the number of entities. And uh, I think from last year there is around 235 entities spread in 26 categories. I mean, and it keep growing. And I guess uh, it was not updated, but uh, it should certainly be around double compared to to last year. So it's a yeah, very active community, a lot of drive from accelerators, a uh, lot of, uh, you know, a startup event, uh, a uh, lot of uh, grants as well from government, some support schema to, to encourage the startups, and a lot of partnership as well between uh, public and private sectors to create consortium or, or collaboration or alliance, whatever it looks like, uh, to promote uh, blockchain-based solution now.
8: I would like to describe about the uh, Singapore blockchain community. At least right now, you can say that it is, well, I wouldn't use the word exactly fragmented, but I would say is pretty much divided into different groups. You know, they do kind of like function like clans. There are leadership projects who welcomes regulations in terms of blockchain. They say that, okay, because they are legitimate projects, they want to, you know, kind of work with the institutions, they want to work with the government, they do welcome regulations. But then you have fledging startups that, you know, obviously because the cost of being complying to regulations is pretty hefty. So these are the ones that, you know, do not want to have regulations, including including. including some projects uh, at this moment in time, we do not want to define them as legitimate or non-legitimate, but a lot of them are empty regulations which is why, you know, whenever, you know, talk about DeFi projects, you ask any DeFi project owners, the first thing they'll say, hey, we are DeFi. The whole spirit of DeFi is decentralized finance, which means that we are out of the reach of the banks. We are here to disrupt the banks. We are here to be out of the reach of the regulators. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen that way, right? As long as you are in a country, you have to comply with the local regulations. So I think that's a good mix of people, right? Who Those who believe in regulations because they want to work with the institutions or their companies are evolving to become a financial institutions. Plus, of course, you have the rest of the ecosystem of blockchain companies or even crypto companies that are looking to non-regulations. So they tend to say that we are beyond regulations. So I think that's uh, essentially, you know, what it means for the uh, Singapore Blockchain Committee in, in a sense.
11: I think that the community itself is very dynamic and I would say collaborative. There's definitely a lot of sharing and collaboration across the industry. I mean, one example I will cite is that within MAS itself, we had the opportunity to work obviously on a one-on-one basis with several fintechs and blockchain companies. But one specific example, which is Project Ubin, where we ran a set of industry experimentations. And through that, we had the opportunity to work with 40 companies through that particular project itself. That includes both financial institutions as well as leading tech firms. Through that project opened itself, we've seen that foster or encourage further development and enhancements. We are still at a point where we're still learning and growing. I think we see blockchain use cases across different parts of the financial services sector, right, ranging from solutions in the trade finance space to solutions in the digital exchange space. Companies of all sizes Startups as well as established players, tech companies, large MNCs, and also banks who have been looking at how they can increase and extend their offerings by providing capabilities around tokenizations, trading, custody. I think there's still much more room to grow as an industry. So uh, really, really excited about the opportunities that lie ahead of us.
1: bonus round. We were very fortunate to get the time with Julian Gordon, the VP for Asia Pacific at Hyperledger, who gives us a fascinating insight into the Linux Foundation and how Hyperledger is driving blockchain growth and pioneering use cases within the region.
12: Hyperledger is an initiative or the blockchain initiative by the Linux Foundation. We are a non-profit. We come as Linux Foundation from the history of Linux, which is the number one uh, operating system. All of you are using it today, even though you don't know about 60 to 90% of the world's compute. And it's really about developing open source. About five years ago, a number of about 30 different companies came to the Linux Foundation and said, we would like to create an open source project for blockchain. Initially, that was contributions by IBM and Digital Asset, which then became Fabric and also Intel, which contributed a project now called Sawtooth. And actually we've grown from then to 15 different projects. You can use our technology, you can use it, you can wrap it around your own technology, you can use it without telling us. Every day I wake up and find out somebody doing something new and interesting with Hyperledger. And also people contribute continuously. So we have many developers, many uh, people out there working for companies, individuals contributing to the code. And we have a very, very uh, passionate community. The kind of secret sauce, I would say to the Linux Foundation, is the ability to create ecosystems, not just one company working with an open source, but multiple companies, and that has been very successful. Besides Hyperledger, we have CNCF, which is uh, Kubernetes, and we have many other projects, really, which are kind of like the plumbing for the world, which are open source. So Fabric is very dominant in places like China. It's very hard to get the actual stats. 67% is probably the dominant platform in China, which is, if you remember, just enterprise blockchain. Uh, There is no crypto. If you look across the region, yes. Other platforms, Sawtooth, I'm going to talk a little bit about Bondi Value, which is the first blockchain-based regulatory approved blockchain-based bond trading platform. And that runs on Sawtooth. And I have another few examples of running on Sawtooth. We have a hyperledger Aurora, which the uh, National Bank of Cambodia uses it for one of the first ever retail CBDCs, which is running live now. We have, you mentioned Indy. Indy goes along with Aries normally, and that's all around a uh, self-sovereign identity. And uh, there's many, many projects around that. One of the first ones was Amha, one of our members in, in the Philippines, and that was all around helping bank the unbanked. CBDCs, you know, we all want a CBDC maybe in certain countries, but we have many ways to pay. It's actually providing ability for the unbanked to actually hold money and, and transfer money without having to have a bank account. And then one of the biggest moves about two years ago for us in terms of a new project was BayZoo, right? And the move to Ethereum, Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, who are also one of our members, but contribution of BayZoo, which is an Ethereum client. It's a Java-based one. I talked about the central bank here, HKMA, BOT, those. And also the Reserve Bank of Australia, they're all using Bezu for uh, CBDCs. We have a whole plethora we have from things that can work on Ethereum mainnet to highly permissioned. We have a whole uh, range. And then we have a bunch of tools. We have uh, Caliper, contributed actually by Huawei in this part of the world, which is all around benchmarking. We have Cactus. One of the perennial things we talk about is interoperability, and that's actually coming to fruition as a challenge. And that was contributed by Accenture and Hitachi. We have 15 or 16 different projects now, and we have a bunch of projects in our labs. We have a greenhouse, which we have all our different projects, which are open to everyone, and anyone can come along and get involved. Just download technology and use it. You can contribute back. We have our working groups. We also have a lot of special interest groups around verticals, so trade finance, capital markets, telecom. We're just setting up the manufacturing one and now we've probably come out of China, we've got a supply chain one. We have a lot of interest around those verticals, which are global. And one thing actually about Asia Pacific that I think is always interesting, one of the challenges we have is that we're on the other side of the planet. <laughs> to a lot of the uh, development that, that has happened in the past. So, one of the things that we do here is we make sure that we have a lot of Asia Pacific friendly time zone working groups. So, we have a technical working group in China, an Indian chapter, our trade finance, and maybe some of the other SIGs, special interest groups work in this time zone. So, we're all continually trying to work on how we can communicate across the world.
8: Blockchain won't save the world out.
1: So let's get into some of the best known use cases for blockchain in Singapore. We're going to go deeper on Ubin with Alan Lim, other financial services focused use cases with Julian, other government-led use cases with Stephen Koh, Director of Government Digital Services at GovTech, and two much-loved Singapore startups from Jungwei.
11: So Project Ubin, in a nutshell, is a collaborative project with the industry to explore the use of blockchain and distributed ledger technology for clearing and settlement of payment and securities. So what's really demonstrated is that multi-currency payment and settlement across borders could be achieved in real time at lower risk and cost. So the project was launched in 2016. So it's been through five phases. We concluded project to open as an experiment in July 2020. For phase five, we've developed a prototyped network for multi-currency settlement, and through that, tested out integration with various blockchain applications across different industries, including things like advertising, for example. So I think that from the project itself, there are different goals and objectives across the different phases, ranging from tokenized assets, tokenizing the Singapore dollars, cross-border payments, and also looking at delivery versus payments and uh, ultimately looking at the multi-currency example that I cited in phase five. One uh, exciting thing about Project Ubin is that it's something that, as I mentioned, is collaborative and uh, the intention is to build expertise and to disseminate the learnings with the industry. We've been very open in terms of sharing through publications of reports and in fact, some of the code bases are available on GitHub if anyone is interested to look at it. It's not just experimentation and we're done with that, right? What's been very encouraging is that with an experimentation completed, there's been inspirations and, and further experimentation by the industry. So the industry has moved on to build upon the success. So one particular example is Patio, which is a joint venture by DBS Bank, JP Morgan, as well as Masik, to create a blockchain-based platform that it will enable participants around the world to transact with one another in real time using different currencies. So the difference between Partio and Project Rubin is that Partio will be based on digitized commercial bank money rather than CBDC or central bank digital currency. That's one example where we started off with a concept, we've ran it through a few phases. We've gotten a lot of uh, learning as an industry. And we've seen examples where, like Partio in this case, where private sector entities have taken that forward in terms of, in this case, building up a joint venture.
12: Singapore has had a lot of great developments, right, across multiple industries, I would say trade finance, we've seen some very interesting work in Singapore there, in terms of capital markets, and the work that the Monetary Authority of Singapore has been doing, especially around Project Ubin, and then that's now evolved into uh, two projects, Partor, and also Project Dunbar. It's good to take a step back. We've seen a a global uh, drive to move to uh, central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. And if you look at a CBDCs, there's three kind of flavors of that. There is uh, the retail. There is a wholesale, and there's like the multi-CBDCs. So in Singapore, there's been a real focus around more the wholesale CBDC around the capital markets. Even was a project's been going I think now for four years. We're involved in it. Many different organisations have been involved in it. Kind of a test bed. First, working on things like real-time gross settlement systems. Working on cross-border payments. Now out of that's come two projects, one is Project Dunbar, I think it's been taken on by BIS, Bank of International Settlement, who have an innovation hub there, and also MAS. And that I think is going to be kind of like a base kind of clearing, looking at how we can clear between uh, CBDCs. And then there's a commercial, which is a Project Partor, which is a joint venture between Tamasac, JP Morgan, and DBS, and that's around using CBDCs, and they're looking how you can clear across. T plus zero, right? Instant clearing. And they're looking at that with, if you read the press, what's out there in the public domain, that's between SING dollars and USD. We have a similar initiative that's happened here in Hong Kong amongst Bank of Thailand, Hong Kong Monetary Authority, the UAE, Central Bank of UAE, and uh, also uh, the Bank of China, the CBDC coming out of China. So uh, that's another similar project that's happened. Basically, we're seeing how we can have instant settlement which you can do with blockchain, because before you'd have many versions of the truth and you'd have to do reconciliation before clearing and before settlement. But if you have one universal source of record, one universal source of truth, you can do instant settlement. So that could make a great efficiency and increase liquidity across, you know, the wholesale banking in the world, which is very exciting, and to treasuries. And obviously then we also have the retail aspect of that as well.
0: Fortunately, in Singapore government, we are pretty well-organized. And I became the point of contact for all blockchain initiatives. And from a list of interesting use cases of blockchain, I selected the first one, which is OpenCerts, which is uh, basically digitalized educational credential for schools. I would say that uh, one of the education institutions, Neon Poly in Singapore, they are pretty progressive. They look into this first and then they, they approach us with this use case. And we work with them uh, to develop uh, Open OpenCerts. Uh, long and short of, of it is that it's developed on uh, public permissionless uh, ethereum and we it generates a hash of the education credential and install on ethereum at that time so it's privacy preserving no PII stored on it there's three layers of hashes done to it uh, hash on the key fields and then hash on the document and then hash on batch of documents and form Merkle root and put it on blockchain and uh, it was Pretty successful because there was a rollout to the entire, all the schools in Singapore, the public schools, which is, for example, like primary school, or secondary school, A level, polytechnics, universities, and, and yada, yada. That was in 2018. There's a lot of uh, skepticism, right, about blockchain because at that time there was like, this ICO. There's a lot of naysay. And I, I myself also had some doubts. When we developed it, we were thinking of uh, let's do it small, uh, just for one school and uh, maybe at a Polytechnic, Neon Poly, and then just the rest of polytech. that's it. But when we presented to the minister level uh, and he saw the potential and he asked a really, really good question on the technology and how do we prove that it's cryptographically secure and so on and so forth. And he had the courage to say, why stop at just Polytechnic? Why not throw it out to all the schools if you are very confident? And that was like okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, okay, challenge taken up. (laughs) And not only that, Vitalik also visited us in Singapore. And uh, interestingly, when we uh, spoke to him and shared what we have done, he sat down, he looked at the code base and all that and tried to hack it through. And then he he couldn't, and he gave us a two thumbs up. (laughs) Yeah. And with OpenSearch, we also open source this framework called Open Attestation, which powers OpenSearch. And we reuse this Framework for digitalizing trade document. The project is called Trade Trust. We work with IMDA, Information Media Development Authority, and MPA, Maritime Port of Authority. Basically, it uses open attestation like what we did for Open Source digitalize uh, trade document. On top of that, it also uh, implements uh, the non fungible token protocol to make sure that the atomic swapping, so there's prevent a double spending problem. As you know, for trade document, a lot of it is uh, used for trade financing and all that. IMD and MPA also work with other countries, for example, like Port of Rotterdam, the Dutch and in Australia as well, do a couple of POCs. And therefore, subsequently, there's some changes made to the ETA Electronic Transaction Act in Singapore. So, legislatively, we also recognize digital uh, trade document. There was uh, somewhere, I think late last year. And recently there is a because of the COVID situation. So we also use the same technology, open a test station for health search. Health search is basically a digital standard for schema and how how do you represent the digital vaccination cert as well as the medical documents such as PCR tests. About the various medical documents re- related to COVID that travelers will have to bring along with them and present to the destination country, and it has gone live since about late last year. We developed our health certs for PCR tests, and about a month ago, we we, we released it for vaccination certs. After the WHO released their interim report on what is the schema, the standard for for the vaccine certs.
5: In Singapore, there are tons of blockchain startups that came and went away. But two particular ones that have always intrigued and interest me, one of them is CoinHacko. CoinHacko, you can look at them as the Coinbase of Southeast Asia. They've been around for at least the last eight, nine years. The founders are just very early believers of the technology and they went through so many cycles of boom and winter and it really takes pure perseverance as well as faith in the technology for them to type through all of this as currently one of the leading change in Southeast Asia. So there's just something I think very commendable about the community spirit in this part of the world. The second one that I want to bring up is more on innovation and thinking out of the box, literally, because this company is called Mighty Jacks. Mighty Jacks used to be designed manufacturing of collectibles. And the way they thought out of the box was to implement the blockchain technology to actually trace and track both the origin as well as how the collectible has changed hand along the way. That was way before the whole NFT craze, non-fungible token craze came about. The way that they were able to innovate before the whole market and add an interesting element to their main business was something that I felt really interesting about the blockchain community in Singapore.
13: Now
1: let's go deeper and bring you the inside story of some of the best-known blockchain institutions in Singapore. Starting with Ming and the Tribe Accelerator, then on to Zelda Anthony, Executive Director for DLT at Standard Chartered, Jungwei and Accreditify, Carl and Contour, Atul at DLT Ledgers, Ernie Teo, co-founder of Dodoko, and rounding off with an interesting story about NFTs from Kevin. So Tribe
6: started back in 2018 after the cryptocurrency crash. And the big problem that we saw was that startups were being shunned away because they were using the word blockchain with or without cryptocurrencies being in their business model. A lot of them were facing bank account issues, regulatory issues that were coming up. People were afraid that, oh, is this something safe for me to do in Singapore to use blockchain or to incorporate some form of token elements? We wanted to really bridge the gap between corporates to tell them that, hey, blockchain is just like any other technology, right? It's just like AI, it's just like machine learning. Let's focus more on the technology than anything that is spec. It was definitely a tricky business to start off with. Through the last two years, i mean, thankful to the support of the government agencies that have heard that there needs to be support for startups. Some of them have already been in the market since 2013 to really help them and show that Singapore can be a blockchain hub as well. We have like three different business verticals under Tribe. So the first is what people commonly know us for, so it's an accelerator. So Tribe Accelerator is the first government-supported blockchain accelerator in Singapore, funded by this government agency called Enterprise Singapore under the Trade and Industry Ministry, where we work with like leading corporates to really help startup gain access to business opportunities or commercial partnerships as well as funding from venture capital. We've helped the startups facilitate an extra uh, 70 US million over the last two years itself. And the other vertical that was launched in 20, late 2019 was our academy, where we really want to help grow the amount of developers within the blockchain ecosystem. We've been speaking with the layer ones, different protocols, even companies using blockchain as a solution. And the big issue is. How, how do we get sufficient developers in order to take us to scale? And this also came out when some of our startups, they were doing really well, getting good commercial partnerships with our corporate partners. And the next step on scalability is like, oh, I, I really need more developers. Can you help me find them? So, so we started the academy. And last part is open notes. Open notes is a neutral platform that we set out to create. It's sort of like a mini think tank where we bring corporates, governments to come together to discuss about the role of blockchain in their industry. Maybe the guys like Nestle, Procter & Gamble to talk about blockchain in the agri-food industry, or like BMW or Daimler talking about blockchain in the mobility industry. And the role of open notes and the work that we do at Tribe all surrounds the idea of neutrality because we believe that blockchain requires a level of cooperation, sometimes between friends, competitors, or even frenemies. Only through having this neutral platform will corporates be able to come together to talk about how to better facilitate transactions within this industry or certain form of partnership that requires the use of blockchain technology. Tribe has always been wanting to facilitate other parties similar to what we do in other markets itself. The work we do has been well received by the Dutch government when they came to visit us during the Singapore FinTech Fest. And we managed to strike a partnership to explore how do we nurture cross-border use cases between Singapore and Netherlands. And one example is between the port of Singapore and the port of Rotterdam. How do you use blockchain for tracking of trade and tracking of shipping routes? Other markets that we also generally Work with partners includes like Latin America, Middle East, of course, discussing with the government agencies like Dubai International Finance Centre or Abu Dhabi Global Markets. And this allows us to grow, I mean, the global ecosystem. So today we are partners in more than 32 different cities to facilitate helping our startups launch in different markets. Or similarly, when their startups come into Singapore, we help them gain access to the Southeast Asian ecosystem.
14: Over the last three to five years, there's been a lot of effort by banks, really, a lot of financial services initiatives in blockchain. A lot of that is because the MAS has been great at being very supportive, both of banks innovating with blockchain, but also in encouraging fintechs. We've seen projects around KYC and identity, cross-border payments, supply chain finance, documentary trade as well. And then, latterly, more around digital assets, CBDCs, cryptocurrencies. Still, these other projects are still happening in in trade and cash, and and industries are, are getting involved with blockchain with their supply chains. One of the things we're getting involved in is where blockchain consortia have been set up. You know, as an industry effort. We've also been getting involved where customers have built out a blockchain platform and they want their bank to join that platform, maybe as a settlement bank or, or to help with cross border payments, etc. So we've been joining customer platforms as well. We've also been co creating with customers on new blockchain initiatives. We're working on a number of new industry initiatives, whether it's with central banks, securities market infrastructures. We're also involved, as you'd expect, in associations, we're involved in regulatory consultations, and also in research. And then when it comes to specific projects, obviously a number of the things that we're working on are are confidential, but there's a number of things that are in the press that I can share. For example, in trade, we've joined the Contour Network, which has been an interesting journey for Stancharted as an original investor, a board member in in Contour. And Contour, as you know, is working on documentary trade and making that more efficient for corporates and banks, starting with letters of credit. So we are operationally ready for production now in Contour. We've been working on LinkLogist in trade as well, which is a Chinese deep-tier trade finance platforms. And also the trade platform as well, which is again around the supply chain financing side. On the cash side, we've been involved in the MAS Project Ubin with a number of other banks in Singapore. We've got involved in Ripple for cross-border payments and have a product around that. And also with Amp Financial in China, which is a remittance platform where we're operating as a settlement bank. As you've seen, there's an awful lot happening in blockchain in China with things like the PBOC issuing the DCEP, et cetera. And then in financial markets, more latterly, you've probably seen some of our press releases around Zodia, which is a custody asset cryptocurrency custodian product. We have recently, very recently, announced that we're setting up a a global voluntary carbon exchange. Antartic has got a partnership with DBS, SGX, and Tamasek. And also setting up a, or working on a digital asset trading venue. So these are the kind of new things that are happening in financial markets as well. So that's a lot happening. And that, that's obviously the public stuff that I can talk about. And there's obviously other things happening in the background. We're certainly involved in all the discussions around things like sustainable finance, around digital assets, et cetera.
5: Credify is a company very fundamentally. We take data to create verifiable documents. So, we define verifiable documents that are firstly tamper proof and secondly traceable back to the source. So, when we first started in 2019, we worked with the education institutes to issue things like your degrees, diplomas, transcripts, very much academic related. Then, along the way, we allowed our clients and our users to discover use cases on their own to the extent of, you know, currently we even do things like certificate of first aid proficiency, working at hikes, workplace safety, and expanded beyond academic to other forms of skills and competencies. Interestingly, when the pandemic came in 2020, we started to not pivot, but more repurpose our technology, same tech stack, same infrastructure same value proposition, but from the education industry to the healthcare industry. When we first started, COVID situation was quite early. We actually helped to digitize what we call the discharge memos. So these are documents that you receive after you recover from COVID-19 to basically have an implied immunity to show that you are safe to go back to the workforce or to your accommodation. Then very quickly, we started looking at other use cases within the COVID situation and started to standardize how a COVID-19 test result is to be issued. And since then, we've been working with the Singapore government as well as hundreds of private clinics and hospitals to issue this verifiable COVID-19 test results that will really allow you and I to, to fly again, hopefully. A lot of people ask us, what is the secret sauce? You know, having lived through all the go rush and rise and falls of the different projects, I would say the key difference about us and the other projects is that a lot of early days, blockchain projects, they come with the notion that I am a blockchain company that does document verification. And I can do in all sorts of industries with hundreds and thousands of use cases. But the way that we approach it was very different. We were objective-oriented. We say we are a document verification and issuance system and provider. We are here to help you with that. And only if you ask, we actually use the blockchain technology. And we knew then that we have to be very focused in our messaging. So we identified the education market as our first beachhead but with the intention of making our products so robust that we can easily go into any other industry. Sometimes I do it jokingly, but it's kind of half-truth. But if I were to put one single factor of success for us is just don't mention the word blockchain.
3: <laughs> Contour started as a project at R3. So R3 was doing 100-plus projects in, in different areas of banking, finance. Does blockchain make sense and, and in this? Does building it on core make sense? Contour was a project. Project V was eight banks set up and invested in doing a project over about a year and a half to look at letters of credit specifically, letters of credit being a core component of international trade. And would it work together if you put all the participants you know, on a distributed ledger to be able to communicate more transparently? And after building some of the software and, and the software was built originally in, in Hong Kong, the testing went with the customers, the corporates liked it. And the eight banks decided to invest in a company. So that was sort of the early first quarter of 2019. And a couple of decisions were being made. A, what kind of company did they want it to be? Second, how much they were going to invest and where they were going to put the company. And so that led us to Singapore. Of course, me working at at R3 and setting up the R3 office in Singapore gave us a lot of confidence as well that Singapore would be a good place to build the community, leverage the community, and build the the business network here. Singapore is a nexus for a lot of world trade, especially in commodities, which fits also letters of credit. So it was a perfect match for us to set up here. December 2019 got the money in, set up the company and then COVID hit. So, you know, hiring people, setting up the company, you know, everyone, we did the circuit breakers and all that sort of stuff like that. I guess it's helped us a little bit on timing because we had a lot of folks that were super interested in Contour at the end of 2019 and they wanted to, to use it right away. We weren't ready. We had two people in the company, right? We had to build the operations. We had to build the legal infrastructure. We had to continue to make the software robust enough and have the security levels enough that banks could use it as a approved software vendor, not just as a POC. At the same time, there's more and more of this digitalization, all the issues with COVID. And so we had 27 banks and 60 corporates all testing the platform, doing live transactions to get us to the level where, okay, we're ready for production. A letter of credit is a very base trade finance unit where you have a buyer and seller who want to trade goods, and they don't 100% trust each other. So the buyer says, I don't want to pay for something unless I know it's what I want. And the seller says, well, I don't want to let go of the goods until I'm making sure the buyer pays me. And so what a letter of credit does, it's a workflow. It's an instrument where two banks, the buyer and seller, both have their own banks. They trust their banks, and the banks trust each other. And so they move a letter of credit, used to be 40 pages of documents. A buyer says, I'm gonna go through the banks to talk to the seller. When they ship, there's certain requirements in that uh, original letter of credit that say, I want this amount of goods this way, tested this way, shipped on this date. All that documentation goes from the seller to the seller's bank and they check and they match it. If it matches, the buyer is obliged to pay, or actually the buyer's bank is obliged to pay. All 11,000 banks in the world do it the same way. What we did in Contour using blockchain, the buyer, seller, buyer's bank, seller bank, they have their own databases. We're syncing those databases related to that specific letter of credit transaction shared between the four of them. And so there's an amazing amount of transparency where every time a party on the transaction does something, the other parties that are involved get to see it. There's a legal workflow that follows the ICC rules. So we've moved a letter of credit advising from two or three days to the quickest of 21 minutes. A amendment usually takes seven days. One of our customers, Rio Tinto said, now it's a couple of hours. When shipping comes and presentation of documents, used to take seven, 10 days. Again, same thing in an afternoon. Fast forward to now, we have 32 people in the office here. This is our third office and now we're in production with 11 banks in
10: 22 countries. 24% of the world's trade goes through Singapore. And you know, if you look at Singapore, it's very small city-state with 6 million people, but 24% of world trade passes through Singapore. That is a very, very big section of the economy here. I always was intrigued with the trade and the supply chain in terms of how we could help take locational advantage of Singapore and provide a a platform which could support a digitization of trade and uh, related supply chain um, functions. I think that really kind of was a sweet spot around what DLT Ledger was born in 2017. In terms of early days, we got a great support from government, which is really, I think, one thing that you would see different compared to other countries. From a blockchain point of view, MAS was the first, uh, the member of Hyperledger uh, back in 2016. And they started with Project Ubi, which is really all around figuring out how a digital currency can be put in place in Singapore. On the enterprise side, we were the first Hyperledger company here in Singapore to really start building a platform to support the enterprises for trade and, and supply chain digitization. So yeah, DLT Ledger supports corporates in their journey for cross-border trade digitization, supports bank in their journey to communicate to the corporate as regards to those cross-border trade and trade finance. We support unique use cases on supply chain, provenance and visibilities, as well as on really making sure that uh, there is a value that is delivered, whether it's on distribution side or on the supply side. And then finally, you know, uh, we have been also focused around providing unique approach or a platform approach to the anchors around supply chain finance?
15: So for the DOCO, our vision is to really disrupt the digital document space in terms of capturing all the documentary evidence on blockchain, such as things like signings, attestations, instead of following a centralized model. Right now, we are providing a digital signing platform in the Singapore space where we are providing platforms that people want to use without actually thinking about blockchain for their business processes to sign on PDF documents, for example. But in the back end, we have the blockchain working there to ensure the evidence trail as well as the verifiability of the document uh, beyond these centralized systems. We are working with several partners here in Singapore. Uh, We've seen adoption here, particularly in the property area as well. Uh, We've been working with governments here in Singapore to integrate with the government certificate authorities into our platform as well, and capturing part of that evidence as well on our platform.
8: There is a charity fund called Blockchain for Good. So one of the key ideas was to have someone of a VIP status to actually with an artwork, NFT, and then, you know, kind of like raise money for charity. So that came to the ears of the Speaker of Parliament. He's a semi-pro photographer. So he has certain ph- photography, right? So that he wants to say, hey, if you can NFT up, let's you know, put it up for sale for charity. And that idea was mooted like almost a month ago. He has gone through various approvals and finally, yes, it's a goal. So... Given that we are now dealing with the uh, parliament of Singapore and and, and it's of certain national security. There is a necessary to do the white listing of both the seller, in this case, the minister, as well as the buyers, right? Because we can't afford to have someone that's of dubious or dodgy origins to be buying the artwork and doing something about it. And that will actually bring detriment to the government of Singapore in terms of name. With that effect, I actually volunteered my NFT marketplace in Singapore to be very much tailor-made to fit the regulations in Singapore as well as in terms of the laws of privacy in Singapore. That particular charity event will happen cast in stone right now, approved by parliament, happened on the 9th of September. It will be published in the media and all that. We are just waiting for the press release, but this is a very much a teaser, but we are giving too much away. So besides the minister that will be auctioning, there will be various notable, I would say, celebrities in the NFT space that creates digital content that will be willing to participate in this charity auction that will auction off their creations for charity. In this particular case, this is the first charity auction that will be working with the government to then, you know, ensure that regulations are in place, privacy are being looked into. So that's something very much interesting about this particular charity auction.
6: Blockchain won't save the world, uh.
1: Now for something completely different. If you work in blockchain and you're not following Lisa Tan, you need to fix up. Lisa is on a mission to bring integrity and economic rigor to blockchain and crypto and brings a unique level of knowledge and accessibility to the area of tokenomics. Lisa shares her story alongside the issues and achievements she's seen over the past few years in Singapore.
13: I came to this space because I was extremely skeptical. My background's in economics and a lot of people keep telling me, oh, look at this stuff, it's so cool, look at... They use a lot of economics in their white papers, in their explanation. I came into the system wanting to see what's going on and why are people putting so much money in there if they don't know what's going on? The technology itself is really beautifully done, beautifully designed, and almost like beautifully engineered as a new way, maybe not to replace the existing infrastructure, but as a complement to the existing infrastructure that we all know is quite flawed and quite inefficient. Then we're going to build new economies and systems above that. The problem is a lot of people are exploiting the benefits that these ecosystems can bring and this technology can bring to create scam and shit projects and trying to scam people out of their money. Because I hate that so much. That really infuriated me. I know that there are going to be scams everywhere when it comes to new technology, but I hate it when they use economics to start scamming people. Like Economics to me is very, very important. And it really is part of my personality, I would say. And when I go around talking to engineers, talking to VCs, talking to all these really bright people in the space, I started to talk to them about economics. The only thing they come back with me is, oh yeah, it's just game theory. Yes, I know it's game theory, but it's so different because what we're building in these kind of token-based ecosystems, it's like I'm building a brand new country on my own. So when I build my brand new country, I'm trying to constrain in the digital space, trying to constrain the environment that participants and economic agents will be trading and transacting with each other. In this world, I'm trying to build the government policies to define the actions that participants can behave, how they can behave, how to incentivize them to behave and collaborate in a decentralized way. When I'm building these systems, I'm also programming different kind of code and monetary policies and different kind of governance law within the token or for the token, within the token in code. So there's so many things that I can do from scratch and game theory comes when you finish designing all these systems and mechanisms Then you do analysis with game theory. And that blew my mind. It's not about following the physical limits that we are confined to, which is gravity or biology. We can extend more than just the physical limits that we are used to. And in a digital ecosystem, the logic that we are used to, the first principles that we're used to, can be changed completely and we can define that right now. So I read papers all the way to the late 1800s to figure out if we're going to create something from scratch. If you're going to create the Newtonian physics of a digital world, we always have to go back to first principles and in economics, we don't really have first principles because economics is a social science. It's really dependent on how people behave, how how agents interact with each other, what are the incentives in place. So we can't really define that but we can define the fundamental principles to allow people to move and behave like that. So economics is really just incentives, disincentives and behaviours. Behaviours will be your supply, your demand, your collaboration, your coordination between people and looking at these basic fundamental pieces or fundamental principles, what are the different kind of theories? What are the different kind of concepts? What are the things that, you know, founding fathers of economists have been talking about since like hundreds of years ago and could not apply them because they didn't have the right tools. But today we have the right tools, we have the right technology to start applying them and to build much better, more efficient systems to allow for better coordination with each other and to build a better future that we can start, you know, leveraging the technology that we have. When I came into the blockchain space, I was living in Vietnam. Then when I did research, I moved to the UK. And when I think I'm done and ready to show the world what this technology could do, I moved back to Singapore. And the reason why I came back to Singapore was because the government here is really supportive of new technology. Three years ago, it was still very, very speculative. Everyone that I spoke to was all about, how do I get price to increase? I don't really care about fundamentals, just give me a simple valuation and then I want it to 10X. On the other hand, about two years ago, when I came back, I realized there were more movers and shakers. There were slightly more serious people in the space. It became a very, a very nice kind of environment where you you have small startups, you have people in different industries, like you have marketing, you have research, you have business development, you have institutions, you have retail side, you you have VCs. And then you also have banks who are trying to tap into the whole fintech, blockchain, emerging tech space. There is some amount of developers in the space because there's Ethereum Foundation in Singapore. And before COVID, there were a lot of meetings and meetups. Singapore is quite small, so there were also a lot of connections with the community in Kuala Lumpur, in Malaysia. So there were a lot of meetups and sessions together. It was very really fun. There's also quite a good amount of different government institutions and associations trying to support this space. And yes, they can be slow, not going to lie, Because when I came back and I had my framework and research paper ready to show the the world what's going on, then the first people that I reached out to was Tomasic and the MAS, the Central Bank of Singapore. And the first thing they came back to me was, you know, we're not interested in this kind of understanding of what tokens are. We are more interested in the network of technology. So like the cryptography side of things, or how do you regulate them as securities or non-securities? Which is interesting because Today, they're asking me a lot of different questions. They were all The answers were all in the research paper. So it, it does show a big change and a big shift in opening up and being more accepting on how the
1: space is changing.
0: We've
1: seen this on many other episodes of the podcast, that the role of government is critical to the success or failure of blockchain initiatives. Singapore might just be doing better than anyone, And to give you the inside scoop, we hear from Ming, Stephen, Alan, and Jungwei.
6: We have both the Monetary Authority of Singapore, which is the financial regulator, looking at licensing and solutions for new innovative startups that are looking at blockchain. They create sandboxes for companies to go under where they can test bait certain use cases. Our technology regulator, the Infocom Media Development Authority of Singapore, IMDA, so IMDA set up a blockchain challenge to call for proposals, and that was where OpenNotes, which I mentioned earlier, the neutral innovation platform was born out from. So they look at how to help the industry grow in terms of the usage of blockchain. So they've been working with startups on POCs and prototypes on how blockchain can form the bedrock of this whole infrastructure of trust technology, which Singapore is pushing forward, as well as government agencies. I mean, there's many to name, but of course, Enterprise Singapore coming through like funding support for like accelerators, for incubators, bringing on board more venture capital to support the growth of the startup ecosystem, as well as of course, like the Ministry of Education, looking at talent, looking at how we can bring more education curriculum with regards to blockchain. So I guess it's a multifaceted approach. Whole of government, looking at how innovation can be brought about in Singapore, I mean in areas like blockchain and in other technologies and I think one interesting or notable kind of initiative that was recently launched last year during the Singapore FinTech Festival was the Singapore Blockchain Innovation Programme. So Singapore has parked out 12 million Singapore dollars to fund blockchain research. This was announced by our Deputy Prime Minister, they are working with like the National University of Singapore, the National Research Foundation to really help grow blockchain research innovation?
0: So in Singapore, we have two government agencies at the forefront or front line of uh, using technology. One is GovTech and another one is IMDA. The difference between GovTech and IMDA is for GovTech, we are very government uh, agency focused. So we partner with government agency to use technology to solve their real world problem. So for example, in the case of um, MOE, Ministry of Education, so we work with them on open certs. And then for the case of uh, Trade Trust, we work with MPA, Maritime Port Authority and IMDA. And then we work with Ministry of Health on health sets. So our role is to bring technology, uh, provide technology as a service and solution product together with uh, agency. We rarely work on our own. We always seek for a business owner and partner who understands the problem domain and able to help to crystallize the the problem that we're trying to solve. IMDA on the other hand is very industry focused so what they do is they provide grants uh, platforms and help do a lot more coordination work and so it's more on the research side of things as well with the schools and um, help uh, industry partners be uh, know about um, as blockchain and help to link them, link some of these companies up with us to work together. For GovTech, when we develop technology, by default, we open source it. And uh, our local tech companies can make use of it and they they make use of it. Uh, They create their own business model and and use our open source technology and um, monetize it and providing a subscription. So it's a service, a SaaS-based product, a service to other countries and other clinics. So for example, for health search, we have 10 or more health service providers. These providers provide issuance as a service to medical institutions, labs and clinics. There's like more than 400 plus, 500 across 30 over countries and cities. As government entity, as for GovSec, we don't really help to it's not a mandate to drive adoption in other countries. Right? So we focus primarily within Singapore on how we use technology to better the lives of our, our citizens and businesses. But at the same time, it doesn't preclude us from open sourcing our technology and give it away to the local tech startup. So they can take it, and if they figure out how to form a viable business model, they so have it. And IMD actually helped these uh, tech startups like uh, linking out with us and with funding. Encourage them, provide links to to other countries, and uh, help to proliferate uh, the adoption of the the product as well. So I look at it as an entire system. So
11: the way we kind of look at it is that within this fast-changing landscape, from an MAS and a regulator perspective, we have an important role to play in terms of building an environment that supports innovation, but at the same time ensuring that public interests are protected. These measures include protecting consumers from fraudulent practices, and ultimately maintaining trust in Singapore's financial market. So that's that variety of different considerations that we need to have. We need to make sure that the interests of the public as well as the environment itself continue to support and encourage the the adoption of new forms of innovation that ultimately benefit the community and society at large. I think just like any other technology, when you look at blockchain, some of the key aspects that we've been looking at is number one, i will cite the presence or the importance of conducive regulations. What we're really saying is that regulation must not front run innovation. It's not to say that we are for or against a particular set of technology. So, introducing regulations prematurely will stifle innovation and potentially derail the adoption of useful technology. So, it's important, as we say, the regulator should run alongside innovation. So in some cases we have introduced regulations such as the Payment Services Act, which expands MAS's regulatory ambit to include new types of payment services such as digital payments tokens. The kind of lens we have taken here is to take a modular, risk-focused regulatory structure approach, that gives the flexibility and ability to respond quickly to fast-changing payment solutions and business models. So, the other aspect is one of the initiatives that was started, is the regulatory sandbox, which provides a concrete example which illustrates this idea of adopting a risk proportionate approach to keep pace with technology innovations, where firms can experiment innovation within a confined environment. So the idea is that with this confined and safe environment, fintechs will be able to promote and try out experiments and innovations without compromising financial stability. For example, we have companies of fintechs who provide a digital asset custody service, for example, a digital asset custody service provider just gone through the sandbox and completed the experiment, tested the viability of the solution. They have graduated and they have given a capital market service license from MES. Beyond just looking at individual firms and providing the regulatory infrastructure, the other aspects is also looking at how can we support the industry through grants, for example. MES is also committed Singapore dollars over three years under the Enhanced Financial Services or Financial Sector Technology Innovation Scheme, FSTi, to accelerate technology innovation driven growth in the financial sector. So more specifically, this means that if you are a fintech or a blockchain company who is looking to have a proof of concept started to test out new innovative application of technology, you could tap into this FSTi fund in working with the financial sector Similarly, if you're looking at establishing an innovation lab in Singapore, that's something you could consider as well, or an industry utility that different players within the Singapore ecosystem could participate in. Through the grant program that we provide, the aim is to really help support the journey towards understanding the, the technology, creating different avenues for experimentations, and removing as much friction as we can that's preventing the adoption of the technology. The last example I would cite is being in a position whereby we continue to work with the industry on practical experimentations around emerging technologies. The idea here is to foster greater public confidence and trust, and also as an industry, I think, better understand what the technology is capable of. Again, one specific example from the blockchain space is Project Lubin. We have other examples in other spaces in things like artificial intelligence and all that, but... The idea of practical experimentation, learning as an industry, I think those are one of the key aspects that has helped us to foster greater adoption in the industry.
5: The government of Singapore, they are probably not trying to find the problem for a solution. So a lot of people like it very aptly put as the title of the podcast, Blockchain Can Save the World. A lot of people are solutions looking for a problem. But I would say that in, in the Singapore government, they just keep a very open-minded stance where they will give us the problem statement and we come up with a solution. Whether blockchain is used or not, that is really not the priority. So for example, in the healthcare credential space, the first problem that we solved for the Singapore government was specifically on the issuance of discharge memos for recovered patients. After you recover from COVID-19, you are given a physical piece of paper that says you completed your quarantine, you have recovered, tested negative, good to go. That shift from self-consumption of medical records to medical records that require verification and authentication is when our technology became from a good to have to a need to have. So we started working with the ministries It was a multi-ministry collaboration, so something that was very difficult to pull off. But the government was very motivated to solve the issues on hand. So the deployment was very quick, all hands on board. We started to take data from the Ministry of Health, turn it into a verifiable document, and have it available at Ministry of Manpower for employers to actually check against or for dormitory owners to actually authenticate. In total, for this project, we have done more than 6 million verifications. Just imagine each and every one of these verification could have been an email or a phone call. That would practically be very difficult to pull off. So in a nutshell, I think the governments over here in this part of the world, they are not hell-bent on using blockchain as a technology. They are also very objective-oriented, and they simply keep a very open mind and willing to take very conscious and well-balanced risks on adopting a technology as new as this.
1: With a country the size of Singapore with such a dependence on human capital, talent is always going to be a critical topic. We hear about how Singapore is doing in terms of attracting, retaining, and developing blockchain talent from Ernie, Ming, Amit, and Andrew.
15: So we definitely saw very good talent coming out of the local universities like Zilliqa as well as Kyber Network. So the tech space here is quite vibrant. We see a lot of interest from other types of tech companies wanting to look at blockchain and adopt blockchain as well, especially like the e-commerce companies, the companies doing supply chain, even manufacturing. In terms of the developer pool, we may be quite lacking in terms of that. And that's why there needs to be a lot of training programs here to help developers get into blockchain and to get into uh, more blockchain-like development. But of course, Blockchain is not the only skill that's required here, right? In terms of developing applications that are blockchain-based, we do need people who are familiar throughout the stack, whether it's front-end or back-end. The universities are churning out more and more people who are more well-rounded and more attuned to blockchain. But at the same time, I think we also need to groom these talents with on-the-job training, with more exposure to the industry,
6: and to help them actually get there as well. From a talent standpoint, we work closely with the layer one protocols to explore how can we create better training curriculum to grow their developer ecosystem. Like even for IBM as well, we we work closely with IBM to run training programs to help grow existing developers and train them into blockchain developers in Singapore as well. I think one important area that we focus on is more of the undergraduates right? We work closely with the blockchain clubs from the universities, even more than just blockchain clubs, like fintech clubs and stuff like that, to really pull the best talents from there, to get them to work on projects together with Cargill, WeBank. I think we did one with IBM as well on Quantum, to really get them to explore. Because if you can really help students gain access to the industry, that will really spur their whole idea of what new technologies can bring and how can it be applied on a real world
7: level? We have good talent base on the business side because of the inherent community of fintechs, the community of financial institutions, the community of large corporate headquarters being here and technology companies also being here. Collectively, if I were looking for business talent, I think it's relatively easier to find those. I think it gets harder on the technical side where if you're looking for solution engineers, or core platform engineers in Singapore, I think that gets a bit harder because, like, the demand is much higher than the supply is, and you know, inherently, what Singapore does is have um, much friendlier immigration policies to attract talent from around the region. Whether it be parts of Southeast Asia, think of Vietnam, or think of Philippines, or think of you know even Indonesia, Malaysia, or even from places like India, I think they they do a great job at. Making immigration easy. And they also do a great job in incentivizing fintechs or early stage companies to set up here. So there's various government grants. The most recent one from MAS, for example, is on green finance. I think the challenge right now, to be frank, is you know, due to COVID, you know, this immigration is not really happening as easily as before. I think borders are closed inherently because of COVID, I think people are not able to move from one country to another. So that's limiting our ability to hire the highest quality talent from anywhere in the region and bring them to Singapore very easily. But I think this is a temporary phase. I think Singapore acknowledges that talent is what they have. And like this is a knowledge economy and a service economy. We are not a manufacturing economy or anything else. So I think we have to bring in the right talent and i think singapore does a phenomenal job in general i would say uh, but recently we are strained because of uh, covid and the restrictions there Of because of COVID,
4: singapore government have announced from january there's this tech talent right that singapore government is trying to attract you issue a limited number of uh, residency status to top technology talent around the world who wish to set up their business or collaborate with existing technology projects or institutions here in Singapore. Already, so at least I'm hearing quite a number of uh, take up so far. So basically, as you've probably seen, there was, um, you know, Singapore is still facing a technology talent shortage in supporting so much of uh, the uh, technology work, whether it's startups or is it traditional uh,
1: tax-based. Academia in Singapore has the unenviable task of developing high volumes of world-class talent to fuel the country's incessant drive for innovation. We hear more on how schools and universities are stepping up to this challenge from Ernie, Zelda, and Lisa.
15: I kind of started my adventure in blockchain when i was still a research fellow in the university here so that was in 2016 so at that time really no one took an interest in academia on bitcoin basically they think it's a scam but then we worked hard on it and we started kind of a movement in the academic circle here as well in terms of organizing conferences So we invited a lot of the public sector, the private sector to attend conferences that we educated the audience more about blockchain, more about cryptocurrencies and how they worked as well. And I think from the beginning till now, we see quite a big change and more, more people beginning to understand what it is and understanding the applications. Um, the local universities here have caught onto the wave quite early. Many are providing courses, especially for adult learners, um, short courses like one day courses, or three day courses. On uh, what is blockchain? You know uh, how it works, how it can be applied to their organizations, right? And that has gradually evolved into entering the curriculum as well. I kind of created one of the first courses in blockchain here in Singapore as well. Uh, that's taught in the university curriculum. That was while I was in IBM as well. IBM collaborated with the National University of Singapore, and we launched the first blockchain module in the local universities. We saw a lot of interest, like even in our first year, we were oversubscribed in terms of students. So definitely there's a big interest in trying to know more about the technology. I think now most of the universities have some kind of courses in their curriculum that has this aspect already. The government here has also been very supportive in terms of adult learning and kind of reskilling. So there are classes here, and I'm also part of one of these programs, which are reskill workers to become blockchain developers. We ran three batches of that now, uh, where we educate existing programmers in terms of our blockchain and expose them to more blockchain related projects. And through that, um, hopefully they, they get reskilled and find our blockchain related work when they graduate.
14: I can see these university courses and I've been myself to do a a presentation at NUS. So, So I think they do try and bring in people into those and, you know, the courses are starting. But I think there's really quite a lot more that can be done to train people. Maybe we need to be looking more at employing grads or internships and really getting them involved early on with blockchain. I also think there's a lot of focus on just coding. And I do think blockchain is a lot more than just coding. I, I think it's also about business process re-engineering, thinking about new business models. You know, what is the current business process? What could that business process look like with blockchain? So there's a lot of solution design, agile thinking, all of those things are really important for actually coming up with a, a blockchain solution and delivering on that. I do think people maybe get a bit concerned to say, "I'm not going to get involved in blockchain because I need to understand or be good at coding." And I'm, you know, and I'm certainly not a coder. So, so I think there's a lot more you can do within the blockchain umbrella. Then you see more education because people are really struggling with just thinking it's about Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin is always in in the newspapers and people are now talking about Bitcoin and sustainability and and, the issues around mining and the uh, electricity usage of mining and validation within the Bitcoin network. And then not necessarily understanding that actually a lot of the blockchain projects that we're talking about really don't involve a cryptocurrency at all. Certainly, there are no issues around mining because it's using a different type of blockchain technology So I think education around the sort of negative associations that that don't need to to really exist when you're talking about a lot of blockchain projects. Plus, even on the cryptocurrency side, there's a lot of effort going into looking at more sustainable technologies. So you'll see the Ethereum 2.0 now is looking at moving off proof of work to proof of stake which will reduce some of the sustainability concerns around that. And there are already a lot of other blockchain technologies out there where this kind of thing is not relevant or or not a concern. When we talk about education, because I think education is one of the big
13: parts of it. So I'm doing a lot in educating people, having the book that I've written, having courses, having academy, weekly YouTube videos. There's a lot of reception to that. And on the government side, they're also trying to support more blockchain-related education pieces educating people on how to run enterprise blockchain, educating people on writing solidity code. And I'm gonna be teaching two classes, educating them about how do you create these kind of token-based ecosystems. The ecosystem in the community is actually quite, quite open and very supportive. So when I came back two years ago, the first thing I did was to apply for PhD positions in the universities in Singapore because I wanted to do research. And the first thing that I got back this was two years ago, was no. No, because the government will not sponsor anything relating to crypto because crypto is probably a scam and you need to focus on traditional economics. And I was like, okay, fine, fair enough. It's okay, so I'll I'll start my own company to do research and educate people instead. And today, it is very, very different. Today, it's extremely open. People are hungry for learning. People are really excited to want to understand how this thing works. And I know the institutions, they're, they're trying to educate more people of course, there is a gap between you know, the quality of education as well as the, the output of students, but no matter what, it is a good step forward. You know, there's so much, there's so many things to teach, and there's a huge learning curve, a very, very steep learning curve, in fact. As much as we want to say that crypto is very easy to get in, the first step in is difficult. And after that, it's a lot easier. And the first step still requires quite a bit of, of push, quite a bit of nudging people towards understanding the entire space. The academia space is doing that. It's a bit slow, but it's improving and it's doing a good job. So for example, in Singapore, there are two types of tertiary education. You have university and you have pre-university. So in a pre-university space, one of the education institutions that is educating people more on enterprise blockchain as well as token economics for blockchain. That is quite good. It's not a compulsory course. It is more like a course for mid-career people who are interested in coming to the space they can take and the government subsidizes this. So that's that's wonderful. The second type, which is the university and above. So I've got a few professors reaching out to use the book to be educating the classes, like educating people about digital finance and decentralized finance, which is very great because it shows that at least the professors are not restricted by just traditional economics or traditional finance that they're teaching they actually incorporating these new technologies into the curriculum. Then when the students graduate, they are well-equipped to get started with this entire space. The third thing is also a lot of grants by the government to support the hiring of fresh graduates to get them into the space. I guess it's kind of related to the education space because there's only so much you can learn in school. And there's only so much you can learn or so much you can play around with crypto while you're studying. And it is through like internships and through hiring fresh grads where they can apply things that they learn into crypto and into like decentralized finance that's very valuable. Crypto is not a specific domain knowledge. It's more of applying a lot of basic knowledge that you have out there. It could be in supply chain, it could be in logistics, it could be in accounting, abstracting that information, wrapping it with crypto around it and applying this in the new field. So it doesn't have to be crypto specific education But general education, general specialization, learning the crypto part and applying it together, that's a lot of value in this entire thing as well. You don't have to change the entire academic curriculum just to fit into crypto, but more of how can you educate people with the right principles and skill sets so that they can abstract it and apply it in this new industry.
10: Blockchain won't
1: save the world. It's always interesting to hear perspectives on diversity in technology and blockchain from the different countries on the show. And Jenny and Lisa bring a refreshingly broad take on this particular topic.
2: I think that there are a lot of efforts in ensuring diversity, but I also see this as more like a long-term effort. Singapore in particular, or, or maybe not just Singapore, but in the larger Asian environment, I think that we are only just starting to encourage more females to take up more technical role. In the past, as being an Asian society with a lot of social stigma, a lot of females may not be very involved in this space. But currently, there are a lot of efforts and there are a lot of females that are really starting to be more involved. There are a lot of female startup founders Although I must say that in terms of uh, really technical staff like blockchain developers, engineers, architects, right, we can do better. So the government definitely encourages um, more females. To take up those technical related positions. And also, our local government agency, that's called the Infocom Media Development Authority, IMDA. You can think of them like a government body that is overseeing all the digital and technology efforts in Singapore. They do have a program called the SG, Singapore Women in Tech. That program is to attract and develop women girls and women (laughs) in tech. So they run those programs to encourage females to mentor other younger females and to network with them in the technology sector, help them to grow. They have regular program, regular meetings for all these people. And I know that recently they, maybe not directly related to blockchain, but they had a cybersecurity campaign recently so there are efforts in driving more diversity. When it comes to diversity, like I I do
13: see quite a lot of females in the space, so gender diversity, it's quite healthy. There are a lot of opportunities out there. I would say that maybe it's just my character, but I have never felt discriminated, and as long as you want to speak to a woman, it's very, very easy. It's very easy to speak out Unless you're talking to enterprises, which I do have some experience in that, it's not really discrimination. But just because I do not look older, or my age does bring down the median age of people in the room, then it makes it a lot harder to get credibility. But in general, nobody really discriminates you too much for your gender. So that that is good. Yeah, you don't really get discriminated in the space. At least that's what I feel. And if I want to speak out, like you will be heard. However, I have been to a lot of conferences. Around the, the the space where I'm pretty much the only female, but then again, I don't think it's because they do not want to choose females. It's just that the probability of the, the pool size is not extremely great, especially when you're talking about very technical and and specific kind of subjects. Today, things are a lot better. There's a wider pool of people to choose from. There is a deeper pool of different genders in the space, so you can choose, you can pick the right kind of talent to talk about different kind of subjects. So that is great. When it comes to LGBT, I don't think there's any uh, representation that is classified that way because you, you can't just tell someone's gender by the look of them. So I can't say anything about that. When it comes to race, the Singapore is pretty multicultural. So that is quite embedded. Like nobody really sees anyone for race. If I talk to someone, I will not remember what race they are. But I would say that in general, any conference or any events, they're actually quite diverse. You don't go into a room and see all same faces. People come from all different backgrounds, different cultures. You have the local community, which is predominantly Asian. Then you have the expat community, which is predominantly from the rest of the world. And they come to events together. You have young people, old people. So it is actually quite diverse. Compared to when I was living in London, it was slightly less diverse, I would
2: say.
1: Even in a country as advanced as Singapore, there's still work to do to stay ahead of the pack. We ask Stephen, Atul, Amit, Alan and Jenny for their take on what more is needed to scale further.
0: I look at technology as more of a problem-led rather than a technology push. I want to avoid the pitfall that I've seen uh, many countries, societies and institutions have gotten into when they just do it from a technology push of uh, creating a white elephant product and solution. I think technology should be something that works invisibly without being known that it's a blockchain. It just works, right? Blockchain is a very niche technology. Uh, it's not a general purpose tool. And I'll be very cautious about using it as a default solution. I'll use it if and only if it fits certain uh, criteria. For example, cross-border, then that, that is probably the easiest way to identify whether it's a good use of blockchain. For example, like uh, we have in Singapore, we have more and more of this cross-border marriage. ROM, Registry of Marriage, they issue marriage certificate. Couples often have to bring the marriage cert to another country to be endorsed. And there's no way you can have a globally centralized database of of marriage cert. So this this is one good example of a use case I would say for, for blockchain as well.
10: We do need to focus on the adoption and uh, getting more and more people to use it and make it easy for business people to adopt it. We talk a lot about interoperability. We don't talk a lot about adoption. We have already proven that we can connect Hyperledger to, to Ethereum, to Coda, to Quorum. But is there a real need? So are there networks which are adopted with the transaction throughput that requires you to connect to other networks? So the challenges I see is really creating the network which has a throughput. And then, you know, let's make sure that we have a network which is working well. And then there's another network which is working well. And then, you know, there is a discussion about interoperability. So I think sometime technologically we have fixed the interoperability problem. And to that effect, you know, IMDA, uh, for example, in a public-private partnership has been really driving and sweetening the deal to make sure that corporates and SMEs can adopt the blockchain solutions and they can kind of literally use it for free to make sure that they could start using it and, and start having more and more adoption. So I guess making it easy to use is really key. Then if you look at the other angle in terms of how Singapore is different is Singapore actually on a trade side came out and did the world's first trade registry on blockchain. And we were fortunate to be part of that last year when you know we had about 18 over banks, which work together on a defined problem that was given by MS, which was to really look at how potential double financing could be resolved with blockchain. And, you know, they put in place a uh, framework and utility. And that's a great use case where, you know, interoperability would come to place because that's the utility from Singapore government. And then, you know, if the, all the participating banks will have different blockchain networks, then how do you interoperate, right? So that that's, again, a classic case where you know, we would test all of this interoperability that we are talking about, but really it's all about the adoption. And it's not so much about blockchain, it's more about what can it do for me in my process is probably where I think I would see the challenges to scale.
7: My view is it's a matter of time, first of all. Scale-ups happening, I think we don't hear about Every small transition from existing technology to new tech, or the transaction volumes moving from the old tech to the new tech, you know the government push is continuing, which will help the scale up. Most recently, the General Insurance Association of Singapore, the Life Insurance Association of Singapore, and MAS came together to issue a healthcare RFP that, in essence, almost demanded that you use blockchain. And you know the technology is getting easier to use, and applications are built on for example on corda getting more and more mature and also far more ready for wide scale corporate or fi adoption i think as the technology gets more consumable i think we will continue to see more adoption and for applications which are already in production which there are many of you know the scale up is starting to happen so for me i think i think singapore has the right catalyst both from a community perspective the government support perspective and the understanding of the value of the technology and how it should be applied and how it should not be applied. I think we are poised for a good run over the next few years.
11: I can't emphasize this, the importance of this as much. The importance of coming together and as an industry helps to strengthen the value proposition and help us to understand what capabilities are important, what the inhibitors are for adoption, and that continuous experimentation is very important as we move forward. The other aspects more uh, specifically i think we need to look at things like interoperability and to figure out how with if you look at blockchain innovations for example in the payment space i think we need to look at interoperability with existing retail payment rails for example across borders in terms of how a cbdc or a, a new form of payment could exist with existing payment rails i think that's that's something that we need to look at blockchain interoperability of course is one but I think it's also interoperability with existing infrastructure. The other aspect I think we need to continue to study is also the idea of governance and how different governance models will work. I think that ultimately depends on the specific problem that we're solving and also looking at, I guess, the different jurisdictions that we are launching solutions from.
2: If you look at Tribe Accelerator, it's one of the government-supported accelerator for blockchain startups. And Trap Accelerator has played a very important role in helping the startups in this mm-hmm. space. And they are looking at different verticals, different industries, trying to help these startup companies be connected, getting help from other companies, other partners. And as part of their program, they have nurtured a lot of startup companies. And this is not just in the financial services space, right, or in healthcare, but there are interesting things such as peer-to-peer energy trading. And on that front, I think I'm quite proud of our country for being, I would say for the lack of a better word, like a trailblazer in driving these initiatives. Because Mm -hmm. if you look at blockchain, there is a lot of conversations be it facts or hype around cryptocurrencies, that is one aspect of blockchain. But if you look at, let's say, what we call enterprise blockchain, there are a lot of effort. But to date, it's hard to see a lot of ROI yet because this is something that requires a lot of effort around growing the network. Because if there is no network effect, then it's hard to see a good ROI. And then the other thing is that I guess governance is another difficult topic. So I think these two are some of the factors that can be quite challenging for enterprise blockchain to move forward.
10: There is only one technology which could close that gap at the price to performance ratio. That's distributed ledger or blockchain, right? And if you could provide the UI and the process and easy to use guidance with all the great stuff that blockchain brings, the immutability, tracking and security. I think we are in for a good next five years.
1: Thanks again for listening to the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. As always, opinions in this episode are mine and those of my guests alone. If you want to find out more, please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Check out some of the other episodes on the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast and check out the YouTube channel, also called Blockchain Won't Save the World. Stay safe out there.
13: You like this shit, so you should... Oh, wait, can I say shit?
7: Okay, so let me restart.